Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter to the Galatians. It is in this scripture we're reminded that the gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. The truth of the gospel, that Jesus is better, should change our thinking and approach to absolutely everything. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people perfect in him. Well, good morning. My name is Stacy Potts. For those of you who don't know who I am, because I feel like it's been forever since I've been here. Caleb, do you have the clicker? Oh, there it is. I see it. It has been a while. We gave everybody uh, last week the 9 a.m. service off, and apparently they want to make it permanent because you're the only ones who showed up. So I wonder what 11 is going to be like. It's going to be interesting. Uh, thanks to Chris and John and Caleb for filling in while we were gone. We were gone for a couple weeks of vacation, and then we had teen camp, preparation of, and then execution of, which we thankfully didn't want to execute any of the kids by the time we were done with it, but we had a good time. I brought back a few photos for you. We were gone on vacation. We went up uh, to Chicago to visit Jamie's family, but then we did something we've never done before. We went with her mom and dad, and we did an around Lake Michigan trip. So we started off on Wednesday after Memorial Day. We went south of Indiana up on the east coast of Lake Michigan to something I've heard about but never got to experience, the Michigan Dunes. If you have never, if you didn't even know Michigan had sand dunes, I promise you they dwarf anything you've ever seen. This picture does not even begin to do justice to this. How many of you have been down to Jockey's Ridge in the Outer Banks? Okay, imagine that taller and stretching out as far as the eye can see in every direction. Uh, we got there, and we pulled into the parking lot, and the lady at the gate who gave you know, a little ticket and a guide said, if you want to make the journey from the parking lot to Lake Michigan, plan on hiking an hour and a half. And I'm like, no, not doing that. That's crazy. You know, we're not going to go up. We'll just climb the first dune. So we got up to the top of the first dune, which was taller than Jockey's Ridge. And when you got up there, you're like, oh, there's the lake right there. Let's just, what was she talking about? Let's just go down. We'll come up to the next one. We'll be there. So go down the next one. Come back up, we get to the top, more dunes. But there's the lake, it's right there. I bet it's just one more. Down another one, up, down another one, up. An hour and 15 minutes into this process with no water, no cell phone service, camel trains passing in front of us. I give up. I'm like, I'm not going any further. I literally, I stopped. I said, we are turning around at this point. I was somewhat feeling guilty we've been out there so long. And then partially I was, again, just done. I mean, there... We're talking dunes so steep, I had to take my sandals off and put them between my hands and go up on all fours, getting up these dunes. I was exhausted. We were all exhausted. Apparently, Nathaniel Red ran ahead, and so we were only about 50 feet away, but I didn't care at that point. Uh, we turned around, went back to the car like a four-hour, and it was like an hour back. It was miserable. Thankfully, there was a spot further down you could just drive right up to the edge. So this is what we would have seen had we made it. And this, again, doesn't do justice because it is so high up and it's so steep and the water is just beautiful there. So if you ever get to go to the Michigan Dunes, Sleeping Bear Dunes is where we were at, definitely do it. We then went to Mackinac Island. Again, if you've never been there, just absolutely beautiful, uh, almost like the Caribbean. The water is so clear and pretty out there and no cars on the island, so you either walk, bike, or take a horse-drawn carriage everywhere. So that's kind of cool. Uh, made our way across the Upper Peninsula of Michigan to visit the college that Jamie and I went to, Northland Baptist Bible College, which is now out of business, unfortunately. There's two halves to the, the campus. One half is for the camp, and the camp is still functional, but the college itself is now abandoned. So we were going through buildings, just weird, you know, going through 
classrooms. This actually was one of the ones in better shape. Uh, I had classes in that room, but now you could play like a zombie apocalypse paintball match in there, and it would be pretty awesome going through it. But it was just kind of strange. Uh, there, we were in northern Wisconsin, so of course we saw all kinds of wildlife, deer, uh, wild porcupine went in front of the car, saw a bear. He was tamed and holding a toilet paper roll, but that was the only bear we saw. We were hoping for more than that. So we had a lot of fun with that. Came back, uh, spent a week getting ready, and then a week in teen camp. This is our second year doing teen camp with the uh, youth group from Colonial Baptist Church. Had a great week. Here's some of the kids playing nine square. There's ping pong. <laughs> they have a guy at their church at Colonial. He's retired, and he's made a hobby now out of doing like portable escape rooms. Have you ever done an escape room? I'd never done one before, but he has all the equipment. So here are girls and some other girls defusing a bomb in that room right there. Uh, we also spent a day out at CPC's Portsmouth location. We completely re-landscaped uh, this facility here on Portsmouth Boulevard. It was a little scary, I got to admit. Uh, you're giving all of the, and this is just one side of the building. Imagine this around all four sides. And there were 75 of us surrounding this building, attacking what was there, pulling it all out, and then putting in new. But I was scared. I'm thinking, we're going to about to give teenage boys, 13, 14, 15-year-olds, loppers and hose, a hatchet, saws. We're going to be in the emergency room before this day is done. Thankfully, the only thing that was broken was a few uh, shovels. So that was it. Everybody else came home safely. But we had a great week. Uh, pastor Mike Saunders, he's pastor of Lexington Baptist Church in Lexington, Virginia. A guy I went to college with. He's back. came back this year and preached to us, preached from the book of James. Did a phenomenal job. I mean, I'd I'd invite him here to preach through James for us. It was so good. Um, made me actually sad I was in Galatians. Made me want to preach through James myself. Uh, of course, the kids are giving me a hard time. They're like, he preached through almost the entire book of James in five days. You haven't gotten out of Galatians 3 in like two months. So good news. We're, we're actually going to get out of Galatians 3 today, but we are going to start reading there. We're going to read Galatians 3.19 all the way to chapter 4, verse 7, this entire section of thought that... Um, Paul has for us here, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. So if you will, please look at Galatians 3, 19. Excuse me. Paul asks, why then the law? Well, it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is no slave, neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. 
Well, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Will you bow your heads with me? Abba, we, we come this morning because we desperately need you. We need your word. We need, we need your truth to take all the lies that are in our own hearts and that we are bombarded with on a daily basis. And we need, we need those things to be filtered out and removed from our hearts and minds so that we can see you and see this world, see ourselves for what all of it truly is. You have made us your own. Everything else we see around us, everything else, it doesn't matter. It pales in comparison to that one truth that you, Father, have sent your Son to die for us, to make us your own. You have adopted us. We're not just random people, members of a group or a club, followers of a religion. We are sons adopted through Christ. And so I pray this morning as we look at your word, as we kind of get our footing again here in the text, that you will help us just to begin, just to begin to grasp how precious this truth is. It's not just a, a theological idea. It's not just an academic thing. This is, this is supposed to be our daily life now, and we need it. We desperately need it. I desperately need it. So Lord, please help us this morning in your word. Spirit, speak to us. Open our eyes to see this, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, because of having a, a month off, I think we need to take just a moment to reset a little bit where we're at here in Galatians, because it's been a while since we've been working through this section. In, in the section here that I just read, we are finally answering this question that has been building for some time over our larger study of the, the book of Galatians, and that is, why the law? Why did God give Israel the Old Testament law? And the context of that question is the argument that Paul has been building all along the way here, that righteousness before God, being able to stand before God in a way that he will accept, is in no way, shape, or form contingent on your ability to keep the law, the Old Testament law or any other law. And not only that, but that's the way it's always been. It's the way it was before the law. It's the way it's been in the past. It's the way it is now. It's the way it'll always be in the future. This has been the larger argument. And of course, that's not how Israel had understood things. They had come to believe that one could become righteous before God through their obedience to, their adherence to the Old Testament law. And as such, they felt that God was more accepting of them and welcoming to them as Jews than he was to anyone else in humanity because of how well, in their minds, they kept the Old Testament law. So if what Paul has been arguing here in this letter is correct, and you cannot be right before God through the law, then that's the question, well, why was it given? Why would God give this thing if it couldn't make you right before him? Well, verses 19 to 20 were just an initial answer to that question. If you'll recall, I, he, he's asking the question, why the law? And he gives just a quick opening answer. And I said, you could remember it with three E's or three EXs to be specific. The purpose of the law was to expose and exacerbate sin until it expired. And I'm taking that 
from his answer here in verse 19. He first says that the law was added because of transgressions. And so we asked ourselves the question, well, what came first, sin or the law? Do you remember that? Was there already sin in the world and the law just came to expose that sin? Or was maybe there just like a lot of poor choices, you know, unwise decisions, et cetera, and the law came and finally made those things sin. Which one was it? Did it expose it or did it exacerbate it? And the answer is, biblically, both. It does both things. It both exposed and exacerbated sin. And in this sense, the law we saw was doubly condemning to us. It doesn't help us at all. It, it makes sin even more sinful. In addition, we learn that the law had an expiration date. Paul says here that it was added until the offspring should come to whom the promises have been made. And of course, we now know he's referring to the promises made to Abraham back in Genesis 13 and 15, 17, all those passages that we've looked at over time. And so those are the promises and the offspring he's referring to, as you see in Galatians 3.16, is none other than Christ Jesus. So, so what that means then is that the law had a time limit on it. It was in effect only in that in-between time. It was never meant to be a permanent arrangement between the children of Abraham and God. It's just a placeholder of sorts until the promised offspring should come. And when he came, the law, of course, would come to an end. It would expire and a new era would begin. And, and as you continue working here through Paul's argument, we see that that's really the idea he latches onto in the rest of this section, the idea of the law's temporary status. And he uses a particular concept that would have been very familiar to his world, his readers, but maybe isn't as familiar to us. You see it, for example, here in verse 24, when he likens the law to that of being a guardian. Or if you recall the Greek word that I told you this is translating, it is a pedagogue. And I hope you remember what a pedagogue is. I'll give you a quick reminder. A pedagogue was a servant or a slave who a master would assign to watch over, care for, guide, and protect his son during a specific period of that child's life. So when the child is first born, let's say you're a, a wealthy Greek or Roman landowner, you, you're, you've got property, you've got name, you've got money, all this stuff. You know, your son is very important to you and your family. Your, your legacy depends on him. The entire family really depends on him. And so you've got to be careful with that son. So when it's a, the child's an infant, of course, the mother, the nursemaids are going to care for it. But a, a point comes where that's no longer the case. And so you assign one of your slaves, one of your servants, probably your most trusted one, to be that child's 24-7, 365 attendant. That, that servant stays with that child, watches over it, protects it, teaches it, shows it what to do, what not to do, how to act, how not to act. Its goal is not to, to parent the child per se, but a lot of that ends up happening. But that is only for a limited period of time. And so finally, a day will come when that child will reach whatever age the, the father has established. He'll reach the age of maturity in that family or that culture. And when that day comes... The time of the pedagogue just comes to an end. It's over. The, the child now is a mature adult. He is now the master, and the slave actually belongs to him. This is what a pedagogue is, and this is what Paul uses to help us understand the law. The law, Paul tells us here, was, was our pedagogue. It was just a temporary arrangement designed to watch over humanity until Christ came. In other words, the coming of Christ is the moment of maturity 
in God's larger plan of salvation. Remember, we have to kind of try to keep our minds up a little bit to see salvation from God's perspective, that the coming of Christ is the, the moment of maturity. And now Paul here applies all of this to us and our relationship uh, with God. He tells us, for example, here in verse 25, all of us who have placed our faith in Christ, we're now sons of God. And the idea there is that we are mature sons. In other words, we're, we're no longer children who need a pedagogue. We're, you know, we've passed that point. If you have placed your faith in Christ, that time is past. The time of the law is over. The time of needing to be under that is, is done. We are now one with Christ through faith, as represented and evidenced by our baptism. And this applies to everyone, Jews, Greeks, slave, free, male, female, it doesn't matter. In Christ, we are one and we are sons of God. And it says in Christ, we're, we're considered to be mature sons of God through faith. And this is so real, so genuine, that if we are in Christ, who, remember, is the true offspring of Abraham, the true recipient of all of those promises, if we are in Christ, then we too are considered to be Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. All right, so there we go. It took me like weeks to say all of that, and I did it in three minutes or four minutes there. That's where we ended in verse 29. And so, so this is what we've been looking at now. And now here in these first seven verses of chapter four, Paul wants to come back to these ideas and drive them home and apply them in really one of the most beautiful and amazing ways possible. He, he begins here just by restating the analogy, all right, in verses one and two of chapter four. And in these first two verses, he's just reestablishing and re-emphasizing the analogy of the pedagogue that he has been focused on throughout this section. And since we've already explained that relationship, I don't need to rehash that again, except to point out just one little shift of focus that Paul seems to be kind of bringing to the surface here in these two verses. As you look at verse 1, notice Paul's emphasis is on the fact that this child has a weird, almost um, contradictory in a way, sort of relationship or situation with the pedagogue. On the one hand, he says, the child is no different than a slave. Really, that's, that's what the child is at this point in his life. He, he's under the tutelage of the pedagogue, the care of the pedagogue, so the pedagogue can tell him what to do, what not to do how to do it, how not to do it, where to do it, where to go, when to go, you name it. The pedagogue has control at this point in the child's life. I would imagine the pedagogue has the ability to discipline, to uh, punish even if the child is disobeying. And so, you know, if you were to look at the relationship between the pedagogue and the child at this moment, in any other venue, any other context, you would assume that the child must be a slave. That's how he's being treated. However, on the other hand, and in a really weird twist of fate, the truth is, is that the child is actually the owner of everything, including the pedagogue. I mean, it's the child who is the son of the real master. The pedagogue's not the real master. The pedagogue's just temporary. The child is the son of the real master. He's the one who's going to inherit everything, all the land, all the possessions, the family name, all the servants and slaves in that culture. He is the pedagogue's future master, but not yet. Not yet. You see, the father has set a date for when that moment of transition will occur before that becomes finally and officially true, to use a popular theological idea. 
during this period of time, you could say that the child is already the master, but not yet the master. He's already the master, but not yet the master. He's already the owner of everything, but he's not yet the owner of anything, okay? He's, he's already not yet. It's, it's currently true and not yet true. It's already a reality, and yet it's not yet realized, and if, if you're struggling understanding that idea, every one of us in this room who owns a house or a car but yet makes mortgage payments or car payments, we, we should get it, right? If you own a house but you pay a mortgage, you're already the owner of the house, but you're not yet the owner of the house. If you have a car and you're making car payments, you're already the owner of the car, but you're not yet the owner of the car. There's, there's, a, there's a date though, right? There's a date coming when that, that comes to an end, and now you fully and finally realize what it means to be the owner of the house or the owner of the car. This is an easy idea to get. It's already true, just not yet true. Does that make sense? Well, this is the idea that Paul is emphasizing here in these verses. Now let's see where he wants to go with this. He says, now, in the same way, and I just want you to pause and make sure you understand that idea that we just focused on in verses one and two, he now wants to apply directly to us, okay? So in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Well, but what does that mean exactly, um, that we were enslaved to the elementary? So, well, first, notice he identifies the audience. He says, we. And, and as I've repeatedly told you, Paul is speaking as a Jewish believer to an audience that is primarily made up of other Jewish believers. And so I think generally throughout the section, that's kind of how we need to read it. However, I also told you that we need to try to see this from, from God's point of view in salvation. And so what I really think he's referring to here is, is all of humanity. Everyone, you and I, past, present, future, everyone. So that's the audience. Next, he gives us a time marker. He says, when we were children. Well, when were we children? Well, if I follow the analogy of the pedagogue, the time we were children was when we were under the law. So that's pretty easy. And what does he tell us about that time of the law? Well, he describes it as being a time when we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Just like a child was enslaved to its pedagogue, verse 1, it was no different than a slave. We too are enslaved during that time period to those elementary principles. Now, that phrase is a weird one, isn't it? It's translating a Greek word, stoikion, uh, that's only used seven times in the New Testament. Four times by Paul, once by the writer of Hebrews, twice in 2 Peter chapter 3. It's an unusual word. It has a major meaning and a minor meaning. The minor meaning is, is to refer to the sun, moon, stars, planets, anything that you could look up into the sky and just see with your naked eye. All right, So they didn't have telescopes. So whatever they could look up, all those dots of light, they refer to those as just being stoichion. And that's what Peter uses in 2 Peter 3, that minor meaning. He says that all of those things you see will burn up. They're going to melt in the day of the Lord is what he talks about there. That's the minor meaning. The major meaning, though, is that of referring to the basic building blocks of something. So not the alphabet in and of itself, like ABC, but the sounds that the letters make. Ah, b, k, d, e, f, k. You know, those sounds. You can take those sounds and you can combine them in all different kinds of ways to come up with millions of words. They're the stoichion of your words, of your speech. Or they use it to refer to the elemental, physical, you know, elements of the world. Now, it was Greek. It was Greece and Rome uh, 2,000 years ago, so they were thinking like earth, 
fire, wind, water, that kind of stuff. But it would apply to us if you think of the periodic table of elements. You know, I can take iron and cadmium and oxygen and bromine. I mean, who doesn't love bromine, right? Uh, I don't even know what bromine is. I can take these basic elements and I can combine them in different ways and make all kinds of different things. Those are the stoichion of the physical world. And so out of that, it also came to refer to the basic tenets of any art, science, philosophy, religion, you name it, just the basic foundational components of, of really whatever. And this, of course, is how Paul and the writer of Hebrews are using the term. The writer of Hebrews, for example, in Hebrews 5, he's chastising his readers. You probably know this passage, you just didn't know what he was exactly saying here. But he says, you know, by this time, by the time I'm writing to you, you should be teachers of God's word. But instead, you need someone to come teach you the stoichion of God's word, the elemental basic truths. You've forgotten. He says, we have to give you milk and not solid food. That's how bad it was for the, the audience there. So, so you see it there. You see it four times uh, here in, in Paul's writings. He uses it twice in Galatians. Here's the first one right in front of us. He's using it as a synonym for the Old Testament law, that the law represented just the basics of what it meant to be a child of God, just the basics of what it meant to follow Yahweh. You see the second one just down in verse 9. If you look down in your text, he says, but now that you have come to know God or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? And then he talks about observing days and seasons and years, all this stuff that the, you had to do in the law. He calls it weak. It's weak. It's worthless. It, this is not what we as believers in Jesus should be focused back on and trying to pursue. Those things are elementary. They're, that's for kids, he uses it a third time in Colossians 2.8. Don't turn there. He's just warning the Colossians not to be taken captive by any Gentile or Jewish belief system that's not according to Christ. And then he uses it again, Colossians 2.20, with the same idea. What Paul is doing here is he is showing us that the Old Testament law was just the basics. That's just the, that's the beginning. That's kindergarten. That's preschool. Like, you gotta, that's, no, no, no. You should be in college now. If you've got your faith in Christ, you're in college. You're not back there going, ah, 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 buh, 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 k -k, learning your sounds again. No, no, no. That time is over. We were enslaved to that. But he says, verse 4, when the fullness of time had come, when the date set by the Father had finally arrived, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So again, just think about that from God's perspective, right? I mean, I know it's hard to do, but imagine being able to see salvation history from heaven's perspective and recognizing that from the beginning of time, there was a date, right? It was a day. And everything was leading up to that point and everything that's happened. I mean, but God knew the date when Jesus would come. He would come to be human, born of woman. He would come to be born under the law because he could actually keep it, something we can never do. But it wasn't so that he could say, ha ha, look at me, now I can condemn you. I did it, why couldn't you? No, he, he does it to redeem those of us who were under the law, to buy us out of that slavery. That's what the word redeem there means, to free us. But better 
And more amazing still, he did this so that we might receive adoption as sons. And this, quite frankly, is where Paul's pedagogue analogy breaks down just a bit. See, in a, in a true pedagogue relationship, you know, you've got a master who has a son, and he, he wants the son taken care of. Well, <laughs> we weren't naturally sons. We were naturally enemies. That's what we naturally were, removed, distant, far away, enemies of God, sinners against God, not deserving anything except his wrath. And yet, because Christ came and lived the life that we couldn't live and died for our sins in our place on the cross, not only can we be redeemed from the law, but we actually get adopted, adopted as sons through faith in Jesus Christ. And, and for some of us, and I guess I'm probably in this group, like, the idea of adoption doesn't mean as much to us because we don't have it maybe in our families. I'm not adopted. I haven't adopted anyone, and there's no one in our family who's adopted that I'm aware of. But some of you get that idea, the idea that you've got a parent who wants to go out, spend their money, their time, all the cost is on them to take a child who knows nothing about them and make them their own. Think about that. This is what God is doing with us in Christ's death. He's paying the price to make us his own. And now, verse 6, because you are sons, because you have been adopted, God has sent the spirit of his son, a word, a phrase I would love to dig into, but just don't feel like I can do it yet because I don't think I understand it fully. But he has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So we're no longer a slave, but a son and if a son, then an heir through God. God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba. Abba. If you've ever heard in the past, perhaps, someone speaking on this word or this section, that the word Abba is the Jewish equivalent of the English word daddy. You ever heard that? Well, that's correct. That's exactly what it is. You know, oftentimes the first word that a baby learns in our culture, first words, mama, dada, you know, they'll say something like that. First words, a baby, to this day, actually, these words are unchanged. Uh, in Jewish culture, ima, abba, mama, daddy, same, same idea. And, uh, you know, you think about those words. And, and I'm going to be sensitive here because I know some of you did not have great parents. Maybe you didn't even have both parents or who knows, didn't have any parents. I've met all, all kinds of people. So I recognize that for some of you, you may not be able to directly relate this, but I'm going to speak in the ideal for a moment, okay? So even if you didn't experience the ideal, try to stick with the ideal thought. I think that won't be terribly difficult. But when you think about what a mom and dad should be, you recognize that those words are very special words, mom and dad. They're, they're, they are reserved words. In other words, I've had a lot of, of men who have poured into my life, have mentored me, have loved me, have guided me, taught me, trained me, men I love and care for deeply. I have one dad. But none of those other men did I ever call them that word. My dad's been dead 16 years on July 26th. But to this day, no one's replaced him. Still love him. Okay, so it's a special word. It's a reserved word. Similarly, you know, thinking the other direction. I just spent a, a week with the teens, and I, I love our teens. Jimmy and I have, um, you know, it's funny. 
I like them better than I like you guys. No, I'm kidding. Actually, it's kind of true because they're easier in some respects. They just let you know what's going on, right? They just, teens don't hide as much. They're out there, and that's kind of refreshing in its own way, and it's a lot of, it's very enjoyable. I love them. I, I think they love me back. I, but there's only two of them in that entire group that can call me dad. The rest of them can call me Pastor Stacy or Mr. Potts. But two of them, Nathaniel and Hannah, can call me dad. These are special words. It's a word of relationship, of, of intimacy, of a connection that doesn't exist in any other relationship out there. I only have one set of parents. I only have two kids. And now, now take that and think about the fact that this is what the God of creation wants us to call him. Abba, Daddy, Dad. You know, we were enemies of God. Yet we've been adopted. God, he chose us. He paid for us. He sought us. We didn't seek him. He sought us and made us his own. And now we're no longer slaves. Now we're sons, heirs, and he wants us to cry out to him and for him, Daddy. And I... I've thought about this before, and it's convicting. I've been thinking about it all week long, and it's convicting still. You know, because, you know, to think about calling God Daddy. And I'm not, I want to be careful here. I don't, I'm not focused in on semantics. Please understand that word choice is not my main issue, but it's the heart behind it. So I'm going to focus on the word for a moment. I, I realize that, you know, to think about calling God Daddy, it, it does weird things in my mind. You know, on one hand, I feel like it's irreverent in some way, and it's kind of forced me to realize that I sort of have a wrong view of what it means to, to be reverent towards God. Because if you, in any way, shape, or form, think, well, that's kind of inappropriate to call God dad. Really? Is it inappropriate for your children to call you dad or mom? If my children call me that, that's good. If they call me Stacy, that's bad. <laughs> if your children call me Stacy, that's probably bad too, because I don't like that. I want to be called Mr. or Pastor is fine. They call me dad, that's really not right. We got a problem here, you know? But when my children refer to me as dad, I'm, that's right. It's not inappropriate, that's right. That's the relationship I have with them. That's what I want them to call me. This is right, it's, it's not irreverent at all. And I think about, you know, just the way we generally approach God and I think, man, we have become so formal and so formulaic in the way we approach him. I mean, can you imagine calling up your parent if your parent is still alive and saying, dearest earthly father. You laugh, and you should, because it's weird. You would never talk to your earthly father in that way. You'd call him and say, hey, dad. That's not being irreverent. It's not being inappropriate or disrespectful to them in any way. It connotes a relationship that's real and tangible and that means something. You know, I've said this before. Imagine that you had adopted a child, okay? Imagine you had, you had spent the months, the years filling out the paperwork and going through the background checks, and, and you've done all this, and it's cost you $10,000, $20,000, $30,000, even $40,000 to go through the entire process. And finally, the day comes, you get the phone call. Hey, we have a baby for you. And you go and you take that child. It knows nothing about you. It doesn't choose you. You've done everything for it. You bring it home. You, you, you raise it. You feed it. You clothe it. You love it. It, but it will never call you mom or dad. Thanks, Mr. Potts. How would that feel? After all you had done, it would feel horrible. 
It would be disrespectful and wrong, and yet how many of us have, have lived years of the Christian life and we still feel like we need to refer to God as like he's like super formal, you know, dearest heavenly father. Again, I'm not picking on your, your semantics. I'm picking on the heart. We, we, we don't feel that intimate relationship that this word is connoting here, and, and, and it even becomes almost embarrassing. Like, I'll be honest, like sometimes I've sat down to pray and I'll start like, you know, daddy, dad, I'll, and I feel weird saying it, much less to do it publicly. Like it's, but that's our problem. That's us. He tells us here, this is what he sent the spirit of his son into our hearts to do, to cry out to him, Abba, daddy, I need you. Another problem I see is that I don't run to him or call out to him like a child does to his dad. I mean, if you have children or if you've been around children at all, you know they don't schedule 15 minutes to talk to their parents once a day. Well, this is my 15 minutes early in the morning where I can talk to mom or dad. All right, 15 minutes. I gotta, I'm going to try to make it 15 minutes today. <laughs> It'll probably just be five minutes, but I'm going to try to make it 15. What, what does a child do? <laughs> All day long. Hey, Dad, come see this. Hey, Mom, can I do this? All day long. Chatter, 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 chatter. Just constant, constant. And I think about our prayers, and I'm like, really? Does that reflect in any way what we do? No, it doesn't reflect what I do. Like, when I think to pray, I've got to be like, okay, hold on. I've got to get down on my knees now, and I'm going to, you know, I've got to make this real formal. Who, who said that? Why aren't we just all day long? Dad, I'm going into the situation this, this is what it is. Hey, I, I'm here. This is happening, you know, constant. Doesn't, do you understand what I'm getting at? Like, why do we feel like it has to be different than that or other than that? Not just about requests either, just walking in the Spirit all day long with our Heavenly Father, like we would with earthly parents, so to speak. And yet, you know, is that what we do? No. Again, I think we're wrong on some of these things. I wish I could tell you exactly what was right, and I can't because I'm still kind of, not kind of, I'm still figuring some of that out myself and working through some of those things. But, but it's just, I know something isn't right with the way we're doing this. For the, for the past few years, I'll tell you the story and then I'll be done. For the past few years, Jamie has been volunteering at the aquarium in the summers with the kids. She spent two years doing that with Nathaniel. Hannah wasn't old enough. This is Hannah's first year where she's old enough to do it, and so uh, they're doing it. And both of them started in the same spot. If you've ever been to the aquarium, you've got a building in the north, kind of the main building, and then in the south is the river pavilion. And in between the two is a walkway through the woods, the adventure park's there. And Well, if you were to walk that walkway, you'd find a section. It's fenced off. It's called the Nature Play Place. And it's designed for little kids. We're talking toddlers, maybe up to six or seven. It's probably about as old as kids would want to go in. Um, and it's just got all kinds of stuff for them to touch and feel and play with and, you know, sand and dirt. And they bring out boxes of worms for the kids to hold. And so it's just that kind of place. And all Jamie and the kids do as volunteers, they just kind of walk around and make sure everybody's okay. So because it's fenced in, because there's volunteers, parents walk in and they'll say, all right, kids, go play. And the kids go run all over and do everything. And the parents go sit down, which is what you do when you're a mom or dad. So uh, she was there one day last summer and uh, this Jewish family came in. And so sure enough, they had a three or four-year-old little boy, she said, and they're like, here, go play. So he ran off to go play, and the mom and dad went and sat down. And she was over there near him, and he was doing something. She doesn't remember what. And he either wanted help, or he just wanted them to see. And he turns around, and he goes, Abba, Abba. Just because that's what he does. 
He's a little boy. Abba, Abba. And you know what his dad did? His dad got up and walked over to him and knelt down next to him to look at whatever it was he was doing or help him with whatever he needed. And Jamie said, you know, that, that was the moment like it, it made sense to her. She could see it. It was the picture of exactly what it is that God wants from us to just cry out, Abba, Abba. <laughs> and for him, like any good father would do, to come, to answer, to listen. And so maybe you're here today and, and you're still an enemy and not a son. Maybe, maybe you've never placed your faith. I, I just want you to understand that God sent his son to die so that you could be adopted. By abandoning all other hope and placing your faith in Christ, this is, this is what you can have. For the rest of us, if you are a believer, you claim to be a believer, some of you are prodigals. You're away in a far country, publicly or privately, and you're sitting down there in the mire, and I just say to you, come to your senses. Open your eyes. Lift your eyes up from the mud you're in and go back to your father. He is waiting for you. He's waiting for you. What parent in this room, if you're a parent, you would get this. What could your child possibly do that you would not welcome them back with open arms if they were gone? I totally get it as a dad, right? Like, you were dead, and now you're alive. You were lost, and now you're found. I would welcome my children back no matter what. So if you are in here and you are away from the Father, come back. He's waiting, and then for all of us. Let's remember that Christ paid far too high a price to free us from our sin and from the curse of the law and to uh, adopt us as his sons for us to ignore this. And so this morning, I want us to do something that's unusual by our standards. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads, and I'm going to give you about a minute to pray here in just a second. And I want you just to pray. I want everybody in here, if you're a believer, I want you to pray. And I want you to cry out to Abba, to your dad. And don't speak to him in a formal way. Speak to him simply as a child to a parent because that's what he wants us to do. And then I'll close this out in prayer, if you will. Bow your heads and I'll give you about a minute to pray. Dad, we need you. you. Our, our hearts are just so cold that the fact that you have adopted us, that you... You paid the price. You sought us out, and you have made us your own. You've made us sons, co-heirs with Christ, to the point that we can, through the Spirit of his Son within us, cry out to you and call you Dad. I, it's, it's lost to us. We, we need you. We need you. And we're told in James 4, if we draw near to you, you draw near to us. And so we are we're just crying out like that little boy at the, the aquarium. Lord, just, Dad, we need you. We need you. For those in this room maybe who don't know you, they need you. They need you to open their eyes. They need you to give them the faith to believe. They need to repent of their sins and place their faith in you. For the prodigals in the room, those who are away, and that's quite frankly probably all of us to one degree or another, I, we're down in the mire. We need to just come back because you are waiting. You welcome us. You, 
You're not some mean ogre in the heavens waiting to pounce on us. You are our dad. You, you want us. So I pray and beg that you will work in our hearts to want you back the same way, to desire you, to love you above everything else, that we will truly begin to understand the depth of how accepted we are in Christ, how full and complete it is to be a son. There is nothing more we have to fear. You have loved us and you always will. And so please work in our hearts to understand, embrace, and then live out that truth every single day. We do all of this and ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more sermons on the book of Galatians and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.